And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Keith Law, and welcome to episode 39 of The Keith Law Show. My guest today is going to be Bill Baer, who used to be with NBC Sports, also with Crash Burn Alley, now runs his own newsletter at bearinmind.substack.com. I'll repeat that URL a few times over the course of the show. Uh, just first, some administrative stuff. I did have a post go up last week on the big rule changes that we saw in 2020, which ones might stick around, which ones I think should stick around. It's very much an opinion piece. Um, also, I swear once in the article, and people were very shocked to see that. I'm sorry to uh, destroy any of your innocence. I, I do swear a lot. It comes from working in baseball, I think. So, sorry. Not actually, not actually sorry about that at all. Uh, I will have another piece I'm hoping for later this week. I'm waiting to talk to one more contact, something a little bit different for me. I'm very excited about it. It's a bit of a longer sort of researchy piece. I just need to get one more very specific person, and then I will be able to publish. So just keep an eye out for something maybe really good by the end of this week. If you have not subscribed to The Athletic, we are running a different promotion now. It is a $1 a week promotion. Uh, you can go to theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W, my nickname, theathletic.com slash claw, to sign up for that temporary promotional price. If you are a subscriber, if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, you may subscribe pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. If you're a subscriber, especially on iTunes or anywhere they let you leave a rating and or a review, please do so. I noticed many of you have left five-star reviews and very, very nice comments on iTunes. And I just want to say I really appreciate that. And I have read all of them. And I really appreciate you've said some very nice things. And please know, even though I can't thank you personally, I am thanking you now. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, it's my pleasure to be joined by my friend, former NBC sports writer, Bill Baer, occasionally my uh, also board game competitor. Bill uh, is no longer with NBC Sports. He has his own subscription newsletter called Bear in Mind, B-A-E-R-I-N-M-I-N-D.substack.com. You can find Bill on Twitter at Bear, B-A-E-R underscore Bill. 
Bill, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, and thanks for spelling that out, because my last name is one of the most misspelled things out there, I think. Oh, I bet. Well, I get K-I-E-T-H all the time, so I feel you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, incredibly annoying. When people just, sometimes people just call me Kevin. <laughs> That's also a thing. You do look like a Kevin, though. I, I guess apparently so. Is one of my stock lines when I meet another Keith is often confused with Pete, Steve, Kevin, or Kenneth. And they look at me for a second <laughs> and they say, oh, yeah, yeah. We are. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's our struggle. It's the burden we carry. Absolutely. Yes. So there are things happening in the world of baseball. Um, I'm going to start with a small thing, which I hope will segue us into a larger talk, at least about this free agency, this winter free agency, MLB owners crying poor. But shortly before we started recording, Atlanta announced that they signed Drew Smiley to a one-year $11 million contract. I will tell you my immediate reaction was, Wow. That's a lot more money than I thought Drew Smiley would get, which is not to say I'm unhappy for him. I just didn't expect that, especially this winter. Did you have a similar reaction? And do you think, or what do you think, if anything, this might tell us about what's going to happen in at least some part of the pitching market? Yeah, I was as surprised as you, uh, Drew Smiley for eleven uh, million. I'm happy to see it for him. I'm happy for any free agents getting paid. I just wasn't expecting him to kick off the free agent spending. I was expecting that to be maybe like a second tier guy. I'm not talking like a Real Muto or or a Trevor Bauer or anybody like that, but not Drew Smiley. Right. <laughs> uh, as for what it could mean, uh, maybe one year deals are going to be the thing in vogue this offseason. I think you might see a lot of players taking one-year deals, attempting to establish their market value next year when teams might be more willing to spend. Uh, I think they call them pillow contracts. Uh, so I think that might be one data point does not make a trend, but it might indicate a trend coming. Yeah, that's my... So my fear all along has been, we'll just see teams not spend. And you could say whether it's collusion or not, you know, it's for someone else to say, perhaps. But my thought was teams would just say, we have no money. We don't know if they're going to be fans. We're just not going to spend right now. Now, maybe there's a couple of owners. Maybe Steve Cohen comes in and decides to be like the Kool-Aid guy and just sort of busts through the wall and says, I have all the money. You people are idiots. I'm going to spend and build a winner, which he could totally do. I think the Mets aren't really that far off. But my thought was, if anyone's going to get squeezed, it's probably pitching, right? Because other than Trevor Bauer... Marcus Stroman took the QO. Kevin Gaussman took the QO. Other than Trevor Bauer, there's not really a even like strong, clear multi-year mid-rotation guy available on the market. And I don't know if I should reset any of my calibrations. I just looked at this and thought, hey, if Atlanta's willing to spend $11 million on a guy who's maybe not even clearly a starter, like isn't that Brad Hand money, basically? Yeah, basically. So does that tell us something different? Or is it still like, hey, Trevor Bauer's going to get paid if he wants to if he wants to take more than a one-year deal and maybe everybody else is looking at these pillow contracts like you're talking about which for some guys is not the worst idea right if you're james paxton maybe a pillow contract for one year is the best idea the race could have also just been unique in all of this and said like we want to get at least one pitcher before uh they start disappearing off the board because usually what happens is once one person goes they all start going uh, they go down like dominoes. So the Braves said, we don't want to be kind of shut out this winter. We want to make sure we get at least one guy. Uh, and they want to address that early. It might not mean that they're going to continue spending throughout the offseason. This might be it. Who knows? Uh, but at least in the early going, 
based of one data point, it's promising. It's promising. I will say that. Did you have any feelings either way, I think, particularly on Stroman taking the QO? I don't think anybody was surprised Gossman did. There were a lot of rumors. They were trying to work out a long-term deal with him, any or a multi-year deal at least. So offering the QO and him taking it may have simply been part of a broader negotiation. But with Stroman, I thought it could have gone either way. I, I'm, I'm happy for him. I think it's really good for the Mets. But at the same time, I was curious if the market might give him some decent multi-year offers, even if of even with him coming off a year where he did not play due briefly to injury and then mostly to him opting out. I was not surprised to see him take the uh, the QO from the Mets, but it was very much a coin flip. If he had decided to test free agency, I would have had the same reaction pretty much. My initial reaction, though, was more about how Mets fans treated him when he opted out of the season because he got a lot of criticism about that. Like, oh, he, he gained his own service time. Uh, he sat on the DL just long enough to collect the, a few extra service days, and then he opted out. Because if you opt out, you don't get service time. Um, so some Mets fans were not happy about that. As Sherman is wont to do, he was retweeting and responding to a lot of his critics on Twitter at the time. So I was thinking, he's probably not going to return to the Mets after being treated by the like this by the fan base. But uh, he might have had the same reaction like we have, where the market is pretty uncertain. He doesn't know what it's going to hold for him. So the safest thing is to take the guaranteed money now uh, instead of try to, to test his worth. It also um, made me think, too, you know, team players were, and I saw a lot of that because I've followed Marcus since he was a prospect. We're from adjacent towns, basically, on Long Island. Um, and so I saw him retweeting or responding to a lot of the criticism. It's funny though, when a player quote unquote manipulates his service time, and I mean, he did nothing wrong in my opinion. Right. He exercised his rights under the CBA. When a player manipulates his service time, there's all kinds of criticism. There's not so much when from fans when a team manipulates the service time for a player. Like when they hold Chris Bryant, when the Cubs held Chris Bryant down for two weeks to push off his free agency. We did not have the same kind of reactions which i know i know you and i are of similar minds on that but do, have you noticed the same thing the teams uh, too many what do they call them owner stands tend to favor the owners not so concerned with the players rights yeah it's really a a, a puzzle that has so many pieces because if you think back historically uh the media had pretty much one-sided access with ownership so the and I'm talking like in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, that that kind of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so fans were reading all of this in the newspaper and getting a very slanted view of the relationship between players and owners. And it's only recently started to change with with players being able to cut out the middleman on social media. So you're getting like a fan to player direct connection where they can empathize with these guys and understand this, the other side of the situation. Uh, so I think that's why a lot of people tend to by default side with ownership and all on all this. It's they've been trained over decades to do exactly this. It's propaganda, pretty much. Yeah, and I think the media, are, the media in general, with exceptions, are pretty complicit. Yes, in, you know, in terms of well, this is and I trust me, I've done some of this, pointing out when something is a good baseball decision that's a good business decision that is also a good baseball decision i'm separating out good business decisions that are bad baseball decisions like i criticize the cubs for not calling up 
Chris Bryant that particular year. But there are plenty of times where I've said something that is essentially anti-player is good for the team, Is go, was a good baseball decision. And I, I at least have tried to change the way I've approached this the last, I'd say the last two years probably, to make sure that I'm being more balanced in terms of representing, well, this might be good for the team, but it's bad for the player. And you as a fan should be aware of that. You, where do you come down? And I think I already know the answer, but in terms of almost the responsibility of the fans to be aware. Yeah, you're rooting for the team. You're rooting for laundry, but you're also, these are humans and you should be concerned about, I feel like at least you should be concerned about the rights of those humans, whether we're in a pandemic or not. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, baseball fans who say things like "Ah, keep politics out of sports, but whether you want to or not, every single decision has a political tint to it, political, social, economic, uh, it has so many different uh, arms reaching into so many different areas. So a player being cast as greedy for, you know, testing his metal in free agency as opposed to, you know, taking a lesser deal to stay with his team or, or something like that. Uh, that's a political issue. It's a social issue. And it's also one that can affect you, whether players have these like collective, collectively bargained rights, uh, through having a powerful union, you know, what about you? If you had a powerful union, you could also uh, negotiate a, a lucrative contract. So you can kind of see yourself in the, in, in these players as well. And uh, this is sort of a tangent, but as people in the media, we uh, use certain language about players. The one I criticize the most is when Matt Veskirchen uh, calls a player like the property of the Yankees or the property of the Cubs. Yes. That kind of language really tinges how we view players. If we said something like this player plays for the Yankees or the Yankees uh, acquired this player's contract or something like that, uh, might be a more neutral, balanced way of describing the relationship. Yeah, they hold the player's rights, right? That is essentially what's true in whether it's a drafted player or a player signed in the international market, but particularly particularly treating referring to players as property especially given how often we are talking about players of color and i'm thinking particularly in the international market is kind of a little gross if yes. you think about it whereas just saying they hold his rights i mean you are if you're a team if you're working in a front office and i did a long you know a lifetime ago basically but i did work in a front office and if you're like the players contracts themselves are assets, right? You hold their rights. You have contracted to pay them a certain amount of money, but you're going to, you're expecting a certain level of production. And that that piece of paper, virtual or otherwise, has value. You could turn around and go to another club and say, I will give you this piece of paper that controls this player's rights for the next two years for some amount of money. In exchange, you will give me some other assets. But I, and I'm, I'm saying this with self-criticism too, that we've got to all get out of this, um, mode of referring to these players um the players are not the assets the rights are assets and maybe we have to dispense with the asset language entirely to avoid the confusion but i feel like it is ultimately one it's the language of obviously it sounds like slavery when we when you use it wrong but also just stop dehumanizing the players right i would like to see everybody stop dehumanizing the players whether you like the player you don't like the player he plays for the team you like or you don't like you don't like his social media presence okay fine he's still a human he still has rights and you should want him to get those rights because it could be you it could be you or your brother or your son or your daughter or somebody but those i feel like 
labor rights for one should tra- could translate to labor rights for all, and we should all want that. Definitely. I say this a lot, but uh, and it's not always one of the more popular things I say, but <laughs> you have more in the royal you. You have more in common with these millionaire players, and that's just hard for some people to wrap their minds around. Like They're making so many millions of dollars, but you have more in common with them than you do with anyone on the ownership side. Uh, it's, I think it was, uh, was it Chris Rock who had the different, who did a bit on the difference between being rich and being wealthy? Mm-hmm. He's like, Shaq is rich. The guy who's wealthy is the guy who's signing his paychecks. Right. So it's, it, it's in that vein. Yeah. Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. And it's, I also feel like we, and this is everybody, have a hard time understanding just how much money Steve Cohen has. I pick an owner. It could be any owner picking Steve Cohen because he's the one in the news right now. John Middleton. We're going to talk about the Phillies in a little bit here. John Middleton is a billionaire. And I mean, like you said, it's the difference between being rich and being wealthy. Like We just don't have a good idea of how much money that is. That that's more money you couldn't – you could spend – if you were a billionaire, you could spend $10 million every year for the rest of your life and not run out of money. That's just unfathomable. It is to me – somebody asked me this the other day. I think one of the kids here I was like trying to explain it was it's like trying to imagine the size of the universe. Yeah. From the perspective of us, like we are not there. We don't have that. Our brains cannot possibly wrap around that. And just like people like you and me who make, you know, like you know, we make enough money to live, but we are not making so much money that we can like sleep on a pile of hundred dollar bills. And that even that is probably inadequate an analogy. And I think we the fact that we have a hard time understanding that, we can look at players and maybe sort of kind of figure out, well, I, I might know what that's like. I might be able to imagine what it's like to have their money, but not what it's like to have the owner's money. I feel like that's part of where this this gap comes from and why people find it easier to side with owners, even though you would think they would automatically want to side with the players who are actually doing the work. Another part of that is that the player's salaries are public, but the owner's financials yes. are hidden and they've fought very hard to keep it that way the only time the team's financials are ever uh, open to the public is when the companies are public like the braves and liberty media and the red sox maybe soon with their whole fenway group uh, mm-hmm. that just came about or i should say came about but they were the result transaction right but um yeah, that, the whole thing is is you've gotten a, a clear picture of the player's wealth, but you have no idea about the, the owners. So that lets you say, uh, when Yohannes Sesame shows up to spring training in, in a egregious new ride, you're <laughs> like, what does he need that for? But you don't see the owner buying his fourth yacht or anything like that. So you don't have the immediate visceral reaction to what the owners are doing with their wealth. Yes, there was – this is now going back to when I was at the Blue Jays, but I always thought there was – also always a little bit of racial animus going on in the analysis of who was driving what. Mm-hmm. I at least felt like I heard a lot more criticism, whether it was from people who worked for the team or the media who were covering it, about the choices of players who were, particularly who were not born in the United States, what yeah. their rides might be. And, you know, oh, why, why does Raul Mondesi show up every year with a new seventy dollars or $80,000 car, which he would just give to a member of his entourage at the end of the year rather than store it or try to ship it back to the Dominican Republic and which, okay, it's not how I would personally manage my own finances, but why is that any of our business? And why are we judging him when 
you know, Ted Rogers, who was the owner, well, the CEO at the time of Rogers Corp. I don't know what cars he had. Probably had a plane, right? Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't be weird. John Henry has a plane. He has a private plane. Sometimes the Red Sox people would fly around on it to go scout players. Like that is an unfathomable amount of wealth to they, my They have more money than God. Yes. Right? Yeah. God's kind of poor, I think. Although yeah. he does own a lot of real estate last night. He does. <laughs> yes. Yes. So let's talk a little Phillies. You're a Phillies fan. You used to run Crash Burn Alley way, way back in the day, multiple lives ago. Um, the Phillies are in a weird spot right now. Not the least of which is that nobody's actually running baseball ops. It's not entirely true. Ned Rice, former assistant GM, is now the interim GM. But they have an open GM position. And Andy McPhail, who, who essentially is president of baseball ops, uh, is set to retire after next year. So and And so far, it seems like they've only just started maybe some of that search, whereas the Marlins have already hired a GM, the Angels have already hired a GM. Let's start top down. What would you love to see them do? It doesn't have to be specific names, but as a Phillies fan and and former blogger, what would you like to see them do with those positions? Well, first of all, I thought the order in which they began doing things was a little weird. Like they got Mm -hmm. rid of, or I shouldn't say got rid of, they reassigned Matt Klintak and they left that hole, but they didn't really do anything else. So you have yep. Andy McVale up there sort of as this like lame duck. So you may have to bring in like a new, uh, a new GM who's going to bring him, bring in his own staff. And then McVale's going to leave. So you may have like two different, potentially two different directions that the organization's going in, depending on who they hire to replace McVale. Mm-hmm. So I think if they address the whole thing from the top down at the same time, gets, that would get everybody on the same page at the same time. And that's, I think, healthy. Uh, as far as who I think they should consider, uh, I was reading Jason Stark's article in The Athletic. I'm not a, I'm not a shameless shill here, but uh, <laughs> I read his article the other day about the, the Phillies candidates, and he named Chris Antonetti of the Indians and David Forst of The Athletics. I think either of them, if they wanted to uh, come in to Philly and, and – do a project because that's what that would be. Uh, those are two guys that would be well equipped to do it. They need somebody with experience who can kind of jump in, uh, jump on a horse midstream because that's where the Phillies are. They are not rebuilding and they're also not a complete team yet. They're in like this, they're nascent competitors basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they were supposed to be over the hump this past season, but they kind of spun the wheels. They need somebody who can jump on this horse midstream and kind of direct it across the, across the river. Uh, and I think people with experience as opposed to maybe some hot shots, unproven hot shots that they might poach from, say, the Rays or the Dodgers or something like that uh, would probably be a little better. I could see them. So a couple of the guys from the Diamondbacks, Amil Sade and Jared Porter, who have, who came from the Red Sox, went to the Diamondbacks with Mike Hazen have success with the Red Sox, have success with Arizona. I could see those guys being potential fits in Philadelphia, but it would depend for the GM position, but it would depend on who was above them because neither of them has been a GM before. Right. But they may potentially, those are two names who were both in the Angels search too, so I don't think I'm throwing anything out there that's that outrageous. But both of those guys could potentially uh, be fits because of their pedigree for lack of a better term because their resumes that's a better way to say it um coming from two organizations that i think have done well 
you know, being pretty, being modern. They were there for the modernization of two franchises, two front offices, but both have solid background on the scouting side and both have been in front offices where they were winning. And that to me, I think is the salient thing that you just said is that this is a team that was supposed to win yesterday. And I'm not sure. I, I live here too. We, we don't live that far apart. And I saw a lot of the Phillies this year. I'm actually not sure what I would do. If you handed me the keys tomorrow to a bunch of the teams, I could, I, I'd have opinions. I'm not saying they'd be the right moves. But the Phillies are a tough one because it's easy to say, well, the bullpen stunk. It did. I mean, like historically bad. But you can't just throw money at that and fix it. And I feel like that's going to take a more creative approach or you know, somebody who's just got better ideas or better, you know, better ways of looking at information than I do because I don't think you can just walk in and say, go sign a bunch of free agent relievers. That's going to solve the problem. Yeah, the bullpen's really a, a tough area to just throw money at and hope it works because the Phillies have certainly done that. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily money, but they went out and got a bunch of veteran guys during the season last year, and that didn't even work. Uh, so if you're just going to toss some money, ask Middleton's, you know, give me a blank check, I'll address the bullpen. I don't think that's going to make them any better. A lot of why they are where they are is poor drafting. And that's like a whole thing that they need to address along with their their front office. And it kind of sucks that it came at a time when everybody's getting rid of scouts. However, because so many scouts are now available, that would be a pretty good time for the Phillies to bring some talent in their organization. There's a lot of veteran scouts with a ton of knowledge out there that need work. And Philly would be perfect for them. Uh, so along with like everything else, uh, I think scouting would be probably the number one priority, um, for the long-term health of the franchise. And all, it could also be short-term too, just identifying players to acquire if you're trying to trade somebody. Yeah, that's, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I brought that up. We talked to Meg Rowley last week on the podcast too. And I think if you're a club that has some money and has not, um, and I don't mean some, this isn't even a lot of money. You have a small amount of money and you haven't given up on the idea that scouts have value, which by the way, I keep pointing out the Dodgers and Rays kept all their scouts, as far as I know, kept pretty much all their player development people and both went to the World Series. Maybe a coincidence, but I would say that's probably a decent model to look at. And they've just generally treated their baseball people pretty well. You know, if you walked into the Phillies, that is one thing I would do. I'd say, hey, we can go get some pretty good experienced scouts there good ones who have track records that we could even potentially point to and restaff. Because I agree, I think the biggest problem they've had, and this predates Matt Clentak, is they haven't drafted well. They've whiffed on a lot of first round picks. And actually, they've done reasonably well in the second round for whatever reason. And then they've had a lot of trouble finding value after that. And my take, and I know you've looked at their system at least as much as I have, my take is that they've just been especially short on the pitching side. And I think if you don't draft if you just don't develop i should say draft and develop enough pitching in general you end up in this bullpen situation where you're constantly trying to patch from outside and you just don't have you don't have enough guys to fill a bullpen internally relatively cheaply without having to throw money at external options who aren't that more much more predictable anyway yeah if you have a lot of legit pitching prospects they're not, you're not going to hit on all of them some of them are kind of going to wash out but some of them are going to end up in your bullpen and they're mm-hmm. going to end up being key contributors. It's, you know, not a hundred percent, but it's, so, it's 10, 15%, you know, and that's high enough. But if the Phillies only have, and you might agree with 
me on this. They might have had only like two or three legit top tier pitching prospects. You had Nola, who was mm-hmm. kind of can't miss, and Spencer Howard and Sixto Sanchez. Those were really their their can't miss kind of guys. And yep. Sanchez had a bit of question marks around him, mm-hmm. but um. Even if, for instance, if they held on to Sixto Sanchez and he didn't work out for uh, as a starter for them, he could have very easily went into the bullpen for them and become like a seventh or eighth inning guy right away. Uh, and that's sort of the the blueprint that a lot of teams have. Uh, just a, a wealth of prospects, and wherever they end up, they end up. And you don't have to spend eight million on a on a reliever who's going to pitch, you know, mop up. I, I thought Sixto was better this year than I would have expected because he'd been not, he'd been hurt a lot. He put on a lot of weight, and we saw him this year. He looked pretty different, yeah. actually. But he also pitched great. So I don't want to take anything away from him. But I thought, at the very least, that might be the transition role for him. Maybe he ends up in a starter but spends a year or two in the bullpen. And they just never had the flexibility to do that. They couldn't do that with Spencer Howard for the same reason. Where I like Spencer Howard as a starter, but in a better in a different year, in a different environment, maybe they don't need to push Spencer Howard directly into the rotation where he was actually worse than I expected this year. But he could have gone into the bullpen for them and maybe provided some bulk there and they don't end up with this sort of cascading pitching disaster. I feel like I've talked about this a lot. I had Eric Carabell <laughs> on a couple weeks ago too. Like the Phillies are just, I mean, you know, what's the Simpsons gif, right? Stop, stop, he's already dead. No, let's yeah. kick the Phillies bullpen a little bit more. But that's how you end up there. When, when Spencer Howard is it, and, and, you know, the other guys you drafted who were any good have been traded away or gotten hurt. And a lot of guys just never developed in the first place. I think you end up in that situation. Well, if we're going with Simpsons references, I think the more apt one for the Phillies would be Sideshow Bob constantly stepping on rakes. That's the yeah, Phillies yes. with their, with their drafting. <laughs> but yeah, in a, in a yeah. normal non-pandemic year, I think the plan was uh, to give Spencer Howard a little bit of major league seasoning out of the bullpen in like low pressure situations. Just so mm-hmm. happened they had so many injuries and underperformance out of the rotation that they just needed him. Yeah. Uh, so he was emergency pushed into the rotation and he kind of uh, had to learn as he went along, which might end up being better for him in the long run. It's, it's hard to say, sure. uh, but that uh, sort of going back to our point about like the path, how you build a, a good bullpen that would have been the path that Spencer Howard would have taken for the Phillies. Yes. Yep. I completely agree. Uh, last question I wanted to ask. Uh, the minor league, we've seen more news come out now about minor league realignment. The contraction is just happening, right? We're just losing short season. The two levels of short season that were between the complex leagues and low A, full season low A. And we're now we're starting to see some news leak out about affiliations till major league baseball basically came out last week and said shut up we haven't we haven't announced the whole thing yet stop talking um which is dumb because that, that was so bad oh so bad that's really inept because of course if you're i actually got an email from the lakewood blue clause that had a new name they were like the jersey shore shore blue clause and i love that place i love going to that stadium the folks there have been great greg has been there forever and he's always been great to work with um and I'm thinking, wait a minute, it, by now, they, they have to at least be able to communicate with the audience. Like, I know they know, don't know if they can sell tickets, but you got to kind of keep communicating, keep up contact with those folks. So if you can sell tickets in April or June, that you're, you've at least kept the relationship going. And all that MLB is doing now by failing to 
release all the new affiliations say is they're just making a bad situation for the miners, meaning the pandemic, that much worse. And I haven't been a full-on critic but I feel like of MLB on this, but I feel like they're really not handling this portion of the program well at all. And it's just going to end up hurting minor league baseball, unequivocally hurting minor league baseball, unless they – well, maybe maybe it's too late, but unless they straighten up and get their messaging clear. Yeah, it was very unorganized. It was uh, – yeah. both teams with the Yankees, uh, it was mm-hmm. Staten Island and uh, Trenton. Yep. That they said that the Yankees never informed them. So they learned along with the rest of us on Twitter, of all places, that they were no longer with the organization. So they sent out like pu- really scathing public uh, notices against uh, the Yankees about that. Mm-hmm. We're in the age of like instant communication. Like everyone has a cell phone, everyone has email, everyone has some kind of like instant messaging app of some sort. I don't know how, how that ha- even happens in 2020. <laughs> Yep. It's actually mind-boggling. I want a documentary about how that <laughs> happened. It's I I can't even fathom the level of disorganization uh, that must be that must exist there for that to happen. Uh, but if I may go on a tangent really quick about please do about minor leagues, uh, this is something that I don't think a lot of people talk about with the whole contracting the minors by twenty five percent or whatever the percentage was. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of places, these, and you know this as well as I do, these minor league teams are very big contributors to the local, local economies and the culture. I, I know when I go to minor league games, I'm not just going to the game. I'm checking out the area around it, you know, talking to people, the shops, the restaurants and all that. Lose it. Some of these places losing these teams, it's going to really hurt people, not just in terms of jobs, but the local economy and the culture, it's really going to take a hit. And I'm thinking also of some of these places like Montana, very far away from a major league stadium where the, mm-hmm. where these fans can go. So they go to minor league games to, you know, scratch the itch. And uh, I don't know the whole list of which teams got scratched. We still don't know. I've asked that we did. We just don't know. A lot of people at like Baseball America had a list. I don't know, eight months ago. No, God, more than that. It was probably late last year. But that wasn't the final list. And I, I asked. And they're like, no, we haven't decided. We can't say anything yet. It's it's very secretive. <laughs> but let's say, you know, someone in Montana, uh, they're losing their local minor league team. What incentive do they have to get into baseball? They're losing their connection to the sport. Baseball isn't just major league baseball. It's minor league baseball. It's independent league baseball. It's uh baseball in china it's the japan uh league it's it's south korea there's all kinds of stuff in in uh, in south america and stuff like that mm-hmm. there's a lot of baseball that isn't major league baseball um and i think the sort of consolidation because major league baseball also ate up some of the indie leagues the pioneer league and all that uh where we're starting to get this homogenization homogenization of the sport and that's not good because some people's flavor might not be Major League Baseball. Their flavor might be single A baseball, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people are losing that, especially in these far out places. That is an excellent point. I think a good place for us to wrap too, but that, that idea that – and look, some of those places probably just shouldn't have had baseball. I understand that. But there are also some markets that Major League Baseball might be abandoning and it could – and that are large enough that it's going to hurt the sport in the long term. 
Uh, my guest today was Bill Baer. He, you can find him on Twitter at B-A-E-R underscore Bill. And I encourage you to check out his subscription newsletter, which you can find at Bear in Mind, B-A-E-R-I-N-M-I-N-D dot substack dot com. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. I had a blast. That's all for this week's show. I just want to reiterate, especially as we head into the holidays, please, please wear your mask, physically distance, do not do anything too risky around the holidays. Obviously, it is a time of year when many of us would like to get together with family and friends. This is probably not the year to do that, certainly not the year for large gatherings, especially not indoors. Things are pretty bad everywhere. Nationally, they're bad by me. They're worse in the Midwest. A lot of it is going to come down to the choices that we make over the next few weeks. And please just join me in keeping your gatherings small or skipping gatherings altogether, staying six feet apart or more, and wearing a mask whenever possible. Thanks so much. Please stay safe. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.